Good morning. Ooh, that was good. Uh, grab your Bible or flip on your app, and we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot to bring yours, there's uh, black hardcover Bibles uh, in the seats in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible that you can read at your home, uh, f- please feel free to take this as your copy. And uh, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which is in this Bible, page 968. 968 if you got this one, all right? 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As you get there, would you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word this morning? We're going to read the whole chapter. And you follow along in your copy of God's word. Almost 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray and ask the Lord to illuminate this passage for us today. Father, we thank you for your word that is so easily accessible to us. We think of our brothers and sisters this morning who had to meet in secret, in hiding, perhaps not even able to sing to give away their location. We we pray that you would strengthen them and cause their numbers to grow. Lord, this morning, help us not to take this book, this Bible, for granted. Help us to hear the words of Paul. Help us to uh, apply these words to our lives, to understand what you have for us from this living and active word. God, transform us into the image of your son. This morning, take those who are lost and blind and in the dark. Save them, Lord. 
by your word, the same way we were saved. God, we, we want to see more uh, following you, baptized, uh, studying your word, involved in discipleship, involved in community, using spiritual gifts. Lord, do that here in Garden Grove on this street. We pray for our brothers and sisters down the street at Young Knack Presbyterian Church. Lord, that you would bless their efforts this morning as they worship you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Juan mentioned it in his prayer, but in case you were wondering, it's an election year. Um, just in case you were wondering. Uh, this Actually, this week, you could buy tickets to go see um, two old white guys um, talk at separate times at the Anaheim Convention Center about their plans for America. Um, I don't know if you've paid any attention or watched any of the debates or thrown your remote across the room, but it's been an interesting election season. Maybe I'm just not used to it since it's only my fourth presidential election, but whoo, boy howdy, it is uh, an interesting an interesting time. Um, you know, it's, it's actually really interesting to think about uh, how people talk about uh, this presidential cycle, this campaign. Um, there's a lot of uh, despair. Um, there's a lot of bewilderment. Um, there's a lot of confusion. Let me read uh, something that may have something to do with this. Here's a quote from a scholar. In the cutthroat competition for plaudits and pupils, one has to advertise oneself publicly with audacious praise while impugning the qualities of other contenders for honor. People are constantly vying with others to attain elusive glory and engaged in a constant game of one-upsmanship. This reminds me of um, some of the hosts of some of the debates would talk to one candidate and talk about another candidate's plan and then address this candidate and say, why is he wrong? <laughs> and every time, I just, just thought to myself, what a stupid way to ask that question. Unless, of course, you want better TV ratings. But it just, it just seemed to me to be goading, to be looking for more conflict, um, more sound bites, more ratings approvals. You know, that, that quote that I just read was, was about the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. It did seem to fit um, the American political scene today, especially this part. To advertise oneself publicly with audacious praise while impugning the qualities of other contenders for honor. What does this have to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 10? Paul is going to start boasting. In fact, uh, in the following, in the coming weeks, we're going to see him boast even more. He's a little shy about it, but he, he ends up listing all kinds of qualities, boasting uh, quite openly about some of the things that he has accomplished and have happened through him. So how is Paul different than these other philosophers in the ancient Roman Empire? How is he different than these who are impugning others? Well, the, the message today is entitled Commendable Ministry because Paul says that God commends his ministry. What makes it commendable? What makes our ministry commendable? What will make our business meeting today a look at the commendable things that God has done in us and through us? We're going to vote on people for offices at this church that we would commend to your consideration. We want to be uh, commendable in our ministry. We want to be that way so that we may not distract from what's happening. We, don't want, we do not want to distract from the mission. So look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to blaze through this entire chapter. 
But you, you may have remembered what we talked about the last two weeks with uh, uh, money issues and giving issues. Actually, I think three weeks. Um, with chapters 8 and 9, Paul now makes uh, what everybody can see when reading this, an abrupt change of tone. Um, it is an absolutely uh, hard left turn uh, across traffic. It is um, just very different sounding than the rest of the book to this point. In fact, it's so much different that some scholars even can't come to grips with it and say that it must be from a separate letter. We do not uh, think that that is the case, but I want to show you why Paul changes his tone, why he uh, talks like this to these people. And we've been in this book long enough that you may have forgotten some of where we've been. So I'd encourage you to take a look back through Second Corinthians this afternoon or evening and kind of see where we have been. Paul here starts with m- probably his strongest, um, most uh, abrupt, uh, most forceful identification of himself. He says, I, Paul, myself... <laughs> Me, myself, and I here is three different ways of identifying himself at the beginning of this sentence to really draw attention to himself for a specific purpose. And it's very interesting how he does this. So look at me. Hey, look at me. I, myself, look at me. Listen to me. And the very next words he says are meekness and gentleness. Those don't normally go together. But Paul draws the attention to himself because he's about to defend his ministry. He and his character have been impugned. He has been attacked. He has been spoken badly of. And now he is turning to a specific defense of his ministry, probably against a crew of false apostles, false teachers who have infiltrated the church at Corinth. And we'll see that specifically in the next two uh, parts of chapter 11 in the following two weeks. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Okay, meekness, gentleness, bold. What's going on here? What's happening with this? Well, point number one is commendable ministry operates by God's power. Commendable ministry operates by God's power. And Paul here is going to explain this. Paul begs them. He entreats them. He wants them to pay attention, but he wants them to pay attention to the meekness and gentleness, the Christ-like way that he communicates. See, even this is so much different than the way many of us communicate. Um, In our jobs, in our families, we are quick to uh, let go of meekness and gentleness because they don't work, because the loudest voice in the room gets heard. Paul here wants to appeal to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then it seems... Uh, that he quotes some of what is being said against him by this faction in the Corinthian church. Apparently, and we'll see this as we go along, that some in the church are accusing Paul of being timid, of being humble, which was not a, 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 a very lo- a highly looked upon uh, character trait in the Gre- Ro- Roman and Greek world. Uh, humility was weakness. And so Paul's going to kind of go along and say sarcastically, ironically, that he's humble when face-to-face with them. But when he's gone, he writes these really bold letters. So the accusation is, hey, when you're with us, you're kind of like just timid and weak and, and shy. But when you're gone, you write these really bold letters that kind of attack. And so the false teachers are trying to show the, uh, the instability of Paul, uh, that he's a wimp when, when he's with them, and he suddenly gets this boldness when he's away. It's kind of like how 
some people get when they're on the internet. All of a sudden, very, very bold and opinionated and confident that they are right in all caps and many exclamation points. Here Paul wants to combat that. So verse 2, he says, I beg of you, I urge you, I appeal to you, that when I am present, because Paul has said that he's coming, when I am present, when I come, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, listen, I'm coming and I'm ready to show boldness and confidence in my position. I'm ready to do that. Please don't make me do that. Please don't make me come like this. I don't want to come like this. But he says, I'm willing to, I'm ready to, to those, look at the end of verse 2, who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. What is walking according to the flesh? Paul uses the word flesh in a lot of different ways throughout his letters. So sometimes it means the, the body, the flesh, the stuff. Um, a lot of times Paul uses it in contrast to the spirit. So in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is actually listed after the deeds or the works of the flesh. Um, so that the Christian acts in capital S, spirit-led, spiritual ways, led by the spirit. Now, those who are not led by the Spirit act in fleshly ways, merely human ways, using human attempts and human tactics. And so the, the, the attack on Paul has been that he walks according to the flesh, and, and this is probably in reference to his just being kind of a normal guy. He's kind of weak. He doesn't put himself out there like a lot of the other uh, Roman and Greek philosophers would have. Um, he doesn't, apparently, um, his presence is not one that lights up a room. Um, he doesn't seem to be the most uh, rhetorically uh, 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 consummate speaker that some of the other practiced philosophers were. And so there is this um, kind of denigrating uh, accusation that he's just kind of according to the flesh. Now watch what Paul says in verse 3. He, he basically is a great tactic, by the way. He basically accepts that with a slight twist. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh... Notice he doesn't say according to, okay? The, the accusation against him is that he walks according to the flesh, and he's willing to say, I do walk in the flesh, we walk in the flesh, meaning we're humans, we're normal, um, we've got weaknesses. And then he says, um, but we're not waging war according to the flesh. So Paul's going to go ahead and accept that a little bit so that he can repackage it and deliver it back. He's going to say, we don't, Wage war according to the flesh. Whoa, war. What do we, whoa, what happened here? Paul is showing boldness. Paul is showing confidence in using this war metaphor to explain what is actually happening in Corinth. See, folks, this is spiritual warfare. This is what he sees as going on. Paul sees war happening in Corinth, in the hearts and souls of the people in Corinth. Do, do you see that? Is, is there a war going on right now? Are you, are you being tempted to not listen to God's word right now? Um, is Satan and his demons, are they interested in disrupting what's happening in this worship service? Well, what are we doing about it? Because often, I'll admit, I just forget about that there's a war going on. We are so used to our scientific, naturalistic way of looking at the world that spiritual warfare is kind of creepy, weird... Uh, undefined, subjective nonsense. Shh. Right? That's kind of how we approach life. 
Paul does not approach life that way at all. He says there is a war waging and we're not going to use fleshly weapons. We're going to use divine weapons. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to... What's the next word? Destroy. To destroy strongholds. Paul is using the picture of siege warfare. Um, that, that oftentimes in this, in this world... Uh, that Paul is involved in, that siege warfare was how things worked. You built up your walls and you tried your best to defend against those who were coming inside. I'm a little behind on this. Um, this is uh, modern day Corinth. These are the ruins of the ancient city right here in front. In fact, that's the um, Bema seat right there where judgment happened. Paul probably stood before that seat. In the background, you see a rise in the elevation. This is called the Acro Corinth. It rises about 1,800 feet up from the rest of the city. The the Corinthians knew what warfare meant. They understood the picture of strongholds. They understood walls because as they looked up on the Acrocorns, they saw crumbling walls from their defeat a few hundred years before. Uh, Some of these walls right here uh, predate the time of Paul. And they were crumbling. They still are crumbling And all they had to do was look behind them, look up behind the city to see what pictures Paul was using. This was not a a really out there metaphor. He wasn't grabbing something um, that was really abstract. He was using something that was concrete, uh, stone that they could see, that that they could understand. He says, our weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now watch what he says in verse 5. He continues, we destroy arguments. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised, built up against the knowledge of God and we take thought, I take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, it's, it's really important to note here uh, that Paul is actually using the, the standard siege warfare mentality. Destroy the stronghold, enter into the city, take captives, and prosecute them. Punish every disobedience. Paul wants to demolish his opponent's arguments. He wants to destroy their worldview. He wants to make their defense against him crumble before divine power, the weapons of spiritual warfare, which we know that Paul considered in Ephesians 6 to be mostly defensive except for one, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul was ready to go in and to do battle for what was true and what was right. See, Paul was ready to persuade and to reason with. Sometimes you'll hear people say this about the practice of apologetics. You can't argue anybody into the kingdom, which oftentimes is an excuse to not enter into um, conversation with anybody because it might get disagreeable. Um, A a lot of times that's an excuse. I guess technically that's true. You can't argue someone into the kingdom. Um, But Paul actually seems to think otherwise because if you look in the book of Acts, I just did this yesterday, um, Paul goes in and it's said that he reasons with the people seven times. He tries to persuade them six times. And at least once that I found, he argues. Paul, Paul is not merely presenting something 
for them to kind of just dine on and take a look at and preview. Paul's saying, I have something better than what you have. Let me explain why it's better. Now that is offensive. It doesn't have to be done offensively, by the way. <laughs> but, that, but that is in itself offensive because he is attacking someone else's worldview. But, but how did he say he was doing this? First one, meekness and gentleness of Christ. This, this balance of confidence, boldness, destruction, meekness, gentleness, humility. We do not do very well at that balance, do we? Our world does not consider that to be a good balance. And yet Paul is doing that uh, here in this case. Paul wants to, uh, in, as he said in Romans 1, 5, to bring about, to make it happen, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, the name of Jesus, among all nations. But notice what he's saying. He wants to destroy arguments. He, wasn't, he doesn't want to destroy people. He wants to destroy the arguments, the strongholds that are keeping the people imprisoned. Paul's destruction of the strongholds is actually freeing to bring out these prisoners. And he actually, at the very end of verse 6, puts all of this on one condition. When your obedience is complete. Hey, church in Corinth, I need you on my side. We've got to unite in order to do this. Paul doesn't want to come into Corinth in a few months and go after it and not have anybody behind him. No no one's got his back. He says, when when your obedience in reforming what's going on in this church and making sure that we are not listening to the false teachers, that they are not allowed to have power in this church, when your obedience is complete, then we will take every thought captive and we will punish every disobedience. This is good for the church. It is good to bring about destruction of arguments that are keeping people trapped in ungodly and fleshly ways of thinking. You know, we have weapons available here. You're holding one in your hand or on your lap or on your phone or your iPad. But you know, we've got a a church library right back through. If I could bust through that wall right there, it'd probably be better to go through the door in the cove. But we have a church library with tons and tons of good resources. Arm yourself. (laughs) Grab some weapons. How stupid to run out in the battlefield and forget the weapons. Uh, You have nothing to fight with. Let's arm ourselves. In fact, let's call, should we change the library's name to Armory? The Armory. Go grab some weapons. We have all kinds of opportunities for you um, in that library. We have uh, resources that you can use to arm yourself in order to do this. Uh, We're taking our young people in September back to an apologetics conference that we went to last fall. How many of you guys went to that? A few of us went. You got armed, didn't you? You got these incredible uh, Christian philosophers and apologists who armed us in order to be able to fight against the lies of the devil. Please, don't, um, don't, don't miss what we've got. Our, our, our church library has our summer reading program starting soon. We have so many resources that are available for us. Don't waste them. As Paul moves from the war metaphor in verses 1 through 6, he moves into verse 7 to talking about commendable ministry that displays consistency. Commendable ministry that displays consistency. 
Paul asks them to look at what is before their eyes in verse 7. Or some of your versions um, say something like, you are judging by appearances. It sounds a lot different, but um, what the ESV is basically saying is, look at what's in front of you, but look deeper. Don't just look at the outside. We know that, that Samuel had this problem in the Old Testament. Um, he said, God told him that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart, at the motives, to reasons. Uh, in fact, Paul said something very similar to this back in chapter 5, verse 12, to look deeper into the heart, into the motivations. Paul then begins to, um, to defend himself even more against these attacks from the false teachers. He's saying, listen, these false teachers seem to be coming in and saying, hey, we're of Christ. Remember that in 1 Corinthians? We're of Christ. We're of Paul. We're of Apollos. We're of Cephas. These parties and these factions, they're trying to come in and drive a wedge between the people and the church and what they thought of Paul. And Paul is not going to back down. He says, we're, we're Christ's servants. We're Christ's servants just as much as they are. And then in verse 8, he brings up the word that will kind of dominate the rest of our time together, and that's boast. Um, Alice is learning um, some patriotic songs at school, and so she's been singing, um, You're a grand old flag, you're right. And it gets to the end, and it talks about where there's never a boast or brag. What does that mean, Dad? Way to talk about that. Um, Paul's going to talk about two different ways of boasting. In fact, Paul's going to give us some really good counsel on how we ought to boast. And he's going to give us some really good counsel on how we ought not to boast. Um, of course, most of the time in, in our uh, vocabulary, boasting is uh, a negative thing. It's a thing we want to avoid. But Paul is going to go ahead and employ some good boasting. Look at verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority... Parentheses. There's not a parenthesis in your Bible, probably, but there should be. Which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. Let's pause there. Paul is saying, listen, I have authority over this church. I have authority in this church. And this authority is not inherently a bad thing. We are an anti-authoritarian people, right? Freedom! We're Americans. Liberty! Yeah, give me liberty or give me... Death, we like that, that that resonates with us. Um, But Paul says, listen, God gave me authority over you for your good. Listen, rightly, rightly exercised and rightly understood, authority is a good gift from God. Authority is a good gift from God. And authority in a church is a good gift from God. Can it be abused? Absolutely. But when authority is in submission to God, it is for the building up of the church, not for the destruction of the church. Paul, Paul is meaning to tell them, listen, the reason that I have authority in, in the church at Corinth is not for your destruction. It's for your edification. Edifice, like the build, building up. The, the church is going to be built up because of the good authority of Paul and his team. And he says at the very end of verse 8, he's not going to be ashamed. He's not ashamed of this authority. He's not going to apologize for it. He's going to boast in it. And in verse 10, he then turns to a quotation that's being spoken against him. He quotes the false teachers who say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. The, the, the constant refrain of the false teachers is, Paul's a wimp. He's not a very good speaker. Um, and he only gets bold when he's away and he's got a pen in his hand. He's a writer, not a speaker. That's the accusation 
against Paul. Now look at Paul's response, verse 11. Let such a person, or let a certain person, perhaps he's even, you know, getting just as close to this person without naming them, understand that we say by, what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This is a threat. This is a threat to the false teachers to say, don't count on it, buddy. (laughs) When we show up, we will follow through on what we have written to you. We will follow through. Notice Paul, notice Paul here. He is humbly, meekly, gently saying, I will come on strong if I need to. I will come on strong if I need to. Please don't make me. Because look at, um, he says that, uh, verse um, uh, 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. He's sarcastic here. He's saying, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna commend ourselves by just comparing ourselves to others. Okay? Because when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. Paul says, hey, all those guys in your church that are bragging, who are they comparing themselves to? Just each other. Like, they're the measure of their own greatness. Which usually doesn't work out too well, right? Those are not, like, the people you want to be around most, most of the time. You're like, I'm so good because I'm good. Oh, that's, that's weird how that works, that you're measuring yourself against yourself. That's interesting how that works. Paul's saying, we're not going to go there. We're not going to do that. He's, he's, he's uh, undermining their arguments. We're not going to compare ourselves by ourselves. That's not how we get commendation. We don't do it that way. We don't classify or compare ourselves with those people. And we're going to see a little bit of a spoiler here. At the end of the chapter, Paul says, God commends ministry. He's the measure of what is commendable and what is not. We don't just make stuff up. Now listen, the American church is addicted to this. When pastors get together, um, besides being super nerdy, um, generally it goes, I think this is true, Ron, you can, ba- I, if you, you can back me up, I think. Um, within the first three minutes, someone's going to ask someone how big their church is or how big their youth group is. All right. I mean, it, it, it's almost immediate because that's how that's the only way we know how to measure each other, right? Like statistics, numbers, lots of mucho, right? Bigger is better. That's that's our American way of doing things. The problem is we're comparing ourselves to ourselves. We're commending ourselves by our own statistics. We're using fleshly ways of compiling things. There were four thousand people here this weekend. That's a great number. What does it mean? There are 120 people here this weekend. That might be a big number depending on your, on your situation. What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Or is it just a way to brag and compare yourself by yourself? We are, we've got to be very, very careful in how we commend our ministry by not immediately jumping to numbers okay, or budgets. Okay, or, or merely capital campaigns, or by the newness of our technology or our buildings, we must find a better way to commend our ministry. Last point, number three, commendable ministry boasts in the Lord and for the Lord. Commendable ministry boasts in the Lord and for the Lord. So watch how, watch how Paul here... Um, defines, uh, puts some fences around boasting. He's going to say boasting's okay within this context. Look at verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits. 
He doesn't say we're not going to boast. He already has. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. This is important. Boasting within limits is okay if it is done for the right purpose. Paul is saying we're going to boast about the area of influence that God has assigned to us. Uh, Many uh, of the commentators pointed to Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, um, you can go look at that later, Paul goes and meets with the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem to check his ministry. Um, Paul goes to say, hey, this is what I've been doing. Let's all be on the same page. And basically they said, okay, cool, yeah, we'll, we'll do ministry to the Jews. Paul, you go reach the Gentiles. Reach the Gentiles. That's your area of influence. That's your sphere. Go reach the Gentiles, Paul. And there were not very many more Gentile cities than Corinth. Corinth was the epitome of a pagan, uh, non-Jewish city. We've talked about this in the past. It was known for its immorality. It was known um, for its uh, glorification of the human body by um, hosting the Isthmian Games every two years. Um, It was a center of trade. It was a center where you could actually move up in the world. And it is this place, this area of influence, that seemingly Paul is saying God has assigned to us. And why did he assign it? Last phrase of verse 13. To reach even to you. Paul comes back to the reason he's been given this authority. This area of influence is not so he can be, I'm Paul. The, the, the area of influence has been so that Paul can say, I know Jesus. Let me tell you about him. To reach even to you. See, at this point in the book of Acts and in the letters that Paul wrote, Corinth is about as far west as he's gotten. Um, the gospel has spread a little bit further west, but he has only gotten to Corinth. We'll see that in a minute. Verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves, which is uh, by implication saying these false teachers are overextending themselves. We are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Hey, Corinthians, remember? Remember who shared the gospel with you? Remember who came to you and your pagan lostness in your rituals and your worship of dead, dumb, mute idols? That was us. Remember, we came and shared the gospel with you. So verse 15, we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. Hint, hint, like the false teachers are. False teachers are taking credit for Paul's ministry. False teachers come kind of like come blazing into Corinth when Paul's out of town, do a little bit of ministry, kind of shake things up and then start taking credit for Paul's work. Now, Paul is not concerned that he gets the credit and that it says, Paul Baptist Church or something in Corinth, right? He's not, he's not looking for his name to be there. He's looking for the right message to be there. And he was given that message by Jesus on the road to Damascus. So, so Paul's not making stuff up here. Um, I mean, Paul got knocked off his horse by Jesus in all of his glory. And Jesus told him, here's your job. Go do it. Paul is just being obedient to the message, the mission that God has given to him through Jesus. So he does not boast beyond limits like these other guys do. But our hope, second half of verse 15, our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you, that might be a bad translation, might be beyond you. I think it's a good case for that. 
The point being uh, that our influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Paul wants the borders of Christianity to expand, not politically, but spiritually. Paul has an understanding that there are, there are peoples that have never heard this message. He knows he's a well-educated man. He probably speaks multiple languages. Paul knows that, that the, the Roman Empire spans most of the known world and that there are all kinds of different peoples with all kinds of different beliefs and they're all going to hell if they don't hear the gospel. This drives Paul. This drives Paul to move, to, to see um, the Corinthian church be a, a, an HQ for the West, right? It's Corinth, can we stop squabbling about this? Can we get on track? Let's, let's, let's edify ourselves. Let's build ourselves up so that we can send out more. Let's get things in order here so that we can go west. Go west, old man. Paul wanted to go west. He wanted to continue to go and he wanted Corinth to get its act together so they could be ascending church. Man, we always want to be ascending church. When we start looking only inward, which we have to be careful of at things like business meetings, which is really good that we have a missions report. Um, we always have to be looking to send, to be looking to expand the kingdom. That's our goal. Our goal is not to hunker down in a bunker and try to wait it out. We're, we're, we're a missions-minded church. Jesus is a missions-minded Lord. We've got to be moving outward. Now watch this. Why is the influence to be greatly enlarged? Verse 16. So that, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. Again, he's subtly saying all these guys coming to Corinth after I'm gone and try to mix, mix things up in my area of influence. Paul's like, I don't, I don't want that. I want to go and tell new people about Jesus. I want to keep going. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, how many of you took the Acts class uh, with Edgar? Okay, yeah, you, you guys were in that class. How many times did Paul get the tar beaten out of him and then get up and go to the next city? <laughs> I mean, I forget what city it's in. He gets taken outside of the city and stoned. They think he's dead. They think he's dead. And I love, you read the next verse and, and um, it's very undramatic. The brothers go out, he gets up, they, they go back to the city and then they go to the next one. He just keeps going. Just keep going to the next city. That was Paul's MO. He wanted to continue going. This is why he's dealing with the false teaching. He's dealing with the false teaching for the purpose of mission. For the purpose of movement. For the purpose of momentum. He doesn't want to get slogged down here. He wants the church at Corinth. Listen, false teachers need to be dealt with. I'm coming. I will deal with them. And then let's go, guys. We got to get moving. Let's move. Let's go. Is that your attitude? Is that our attitude? It needs to be. It's not my attitude all the time. I like comfort, and I like things that kind of keep me right in my little comfort zone, um, and movement and momentum and change. Don't do that for me. We like settling. We need to be those who are pushing the boundaries. Um, I, I checked on joshuaproject.net. You know what? If you have a free few minutes, you should go to joshuaproject.net. Write that down. joshuaproject.net. Their whole goal is to chart where the gospel is going in the people groups around the world. Last night I checked. There are still 6,672 unreached people groups in this world. 
that means there is little to no evangelical Christian influence in those people groups. That group, that 6,672 people groups, probably numbers a little bit more than 3 billion persons on this planet that has 7 billion people. How can that be? How can that be? The job's not done. You know what's really cool, though? The acceleration of those numbers going down has been incredible in the last 40 years. We are doing the job. Let's keep doing the job. Let's keep doing the job. This is Paul's passion. His passion was to move beyond, to go into others, uh, to places where there was no influence of the gospel, and to plant it there, like he did in Corinth. We'll close here with verses 17 and 18. Um, Paul quotes uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Uh, interestingly, this must have been a theme of Paul's in Corinth because he quoted it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is worth going back to Jeremiah really quick. Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9. There's, there's a lot going on um, in this chapter, but Jeremiah is in the midst of a lament. He's grieving for his, his people who are facing annihilation because of their disobedience. They've begun to be so wooed by the idols of the uh, nations around them that they have turned from Yahweh, the living God. They have changed what it means to be a follower of God. They are boasting in the wrong things, and they're boasting the things that we're tempted to boast in. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. I'm so smart. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. I'm so strong. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. I have everything I need. But let him who boasts, boast in this. It's okay to boast, as long as you do it the right way. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What an honor it is to boast about what Jesus has done in our lives. To boast about what he's done, not what we've done, right? I mean, our, our whole thing as Christians is that we were saved, rescued. We're not the rescuers. We're not the saviors. We're the ones that needed rescue, that needed saving. Therefore, if we boast correctly, we're just boasting about Jesus. We're boasting about what he's done. So Christian evangelism is never, I'm so holy, it's he's so holy. It's never, I'm so great, it's he's so great. That's what our message is. So, if you boast, boast in the Lord. Paul says this in other, in other passages in Scripture. In Galatians, he says to boast only in the cross. Verse 18, he ends the chapter. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. You don't pass the test by saying, I passed the test. Right? Some of you have finals this week, you had finals last week. Some of you students are getting close to the end of the school year. You don't walk up to your teacher and say, here's my test, I passed. Your teacher would say, we'll see. Okay? Worst chance now. Okay? The teacher is the one who approves you. The teacher's the one that looks at the test and grades it and judges. So listen... The, these false teachers in Corinth were saying, we're great. Do you know how we're great? Because he says, I'm great. And I say, he's great. And we're all great. It's awesome. 
We're all commending ourselves because we, let, we just want to build each other up. Isn't it great? He's great. I'm great. You're great. We're all great. Yay! There's no measurement here. They're just measuring themselves by themselves. It's like me at my house today saying, I'm the, I'm the strongest guy in this house. I'm the manliest man in this house. I am also the fastest man, the smartest man in this house. Woo! I'm good. I'm measuring myself against myself. That's foolish. The one whom the Lord commends. It is the Lord who commends. So how do we know what the Lord commends? He's told us in his book. He gave us a book so that we might see what we have to work on. How we can be commendable in our ministry. Listen, um, this is approval, passing the test. This points us to the final judgment when some of us will stand before the throne and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Fail the test. You're not commended. And others of us, by the grace of God, will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's commendable because the Lord commends and approves. May our ministry, may your ministry, ministries, whatever you're involved in, may they be commended by God because we boast only in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who rescued us from Satan's sin and death by taking our place and absorbing the wrath that you meant for sinners, but Jesus took upon himself. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What great good news we have, Lord. Thank you for saving us. This morning I think of that phrase, in lands beyond you. Lord, this morning I think of the Azerbaijani people. Eight and a half million of them. 0.17% evangelical Christian. Father, strengthen those churches. Send workers into the harvest field of Central Asia. There is much work to be done. Perhaps you might send one from this place. Stir in us. Help us to be obedient to your vision. Help us to be about momentum and mission. Father, be with us and guide us today. We pray for unity. We pray that you would help us to, um, to not tolerate false teaching at Village Bible Church, but that we would be bold towards those who defy the Lord and that we would be meek and gentle in our approaches. In Jesus' name, amen.